Now today we are continuing our break in Mark, and we will actually continue that break for a little while, I'll I'll explain why in a minute. Um, But today we are going to be in 2 Corinthians 2, verses 12 through 17, and there's a lot that I want us to consider today. One is just answering the question, how do we close a chapter out? How, how, how do we go on to what's next? How, how do we go from one season to another? How do we go when oftentimes we don't know where to go or what that next step may be, specifically in the life of this church? What path are we to take now going forward? What, what is the rest of the story like? Is there more to the story? Is there a next chapter? And how do we change, turn from one chapter to another? Like watching almost any movie these days, you get to the end, and the story concludes, every loose end is tied up, but you sit in the theater, and what does everyone do now? Especially if it's a Marvel movie. You wait till the end of the credits, right? The credits end and a new scene appears, teasing the next movie or project. Such and such survived. Such and such will return. A new threat will arise. The story will continue. It's it's not over yet. There's another chapter in this large book. Now that analogy will eventually break down, but the point is that for us... Though last Sunday seemed to be the end of something. It seemed to be the end of about seven years of Joel's service and labor to this church. We said goodbye to our founding pastor. But though it seemed to be an end, it was really just a closing of another chapter. A closing of the chapter of God's book written by his hands for Emmaus Road Church. And so we press on. But how do we best do that? How do we move forward? Well, my goal today is to answer those questions as best I can. And my hope is that God will help us as we go to his word today. Which, as I said, will be in 2 Corinthians 2, 12-17. And just to give you a roadmap for the next couple of months, next week, Corey will be preaching for us from Psalm 107. And following that, we will be beginning a new series for the summer, going through the book of Ecclesiastes, focusing on what does it mean to find meaning in this life, and what, how do we find meaning in things that seem meaningless. And we're going to see that all meaning is found in Christ, and that apart from Christ, everything is vanity, everything is futile and meaningless. So I'm excited, and Micah is very excited to move forward this summer going through that book. And we've not forgotten about Mark. We will, we will um, jump back into Mark at the end of the summer. Um, but uh, as we've done in the past, uh, you know, we, usually, we oftentimes do take a break throughout the summer to go through another series. And so we decided that would be what's best for this church going forward. But today we are in 2 Corinthians 2, verses 12 through 17. So if you have your Bibles, please turn in them with me. And if you don't have a Bible, there are some in the back that are available to you. And as we turn there, would you all please stand once again out of honor for the word of God. 
2 Corinthians 2, verses 12 through 17. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not, like so many, many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. May God continue to bless us through the reading and the hearing of his holy word. You may have a seat. Now, jumping into the middle of an epistle presents some challenges for us. There's a lot that could be said, a lot of ground that we could cover. And with a letter like 2 Corinthians, you have 13 chapters worth of content, plus a whole other letter that comes before it. But, to be brief, 2 Corinthians was actually the third letter that Paul had written to this church in the first century in Corinth. We have only two of those letters preserved by God in Holy Scripture. There was one letter that has been missing that was never found, um, but God had it that way, and he gave us two letters from Paul that are inspired by him. You know, and so Paul, he writes this, this, these letters to this city, this church in Corinth. And Corinth was a very licentious city with much immorality and idolatry. It was, it was a hyper-religious city with, with the temple of Aphrodite, the, the Greek goddess of sexual love and beauty. That was a, it was a large attraction for many. And because of this, temple prostitution and sexual immorality of all sorts were com- commonplace in the city. The city of Corinth was also known for its eloquent oratory speakers. People would fill the Colosseum to listen to men who were well known for their speaking gifts. Something that Paul was criticized for not having, as we see in places like 1 Corinthians 2. But Paul, he had a great love for this church. And that love can be seen clearly throughout his letters to this church, but especially this one. His desire for them is that they would persevere in the Lord as they lived in the midst of a pagan city. As they faced much opposition, as they faced much defeat, and as as they likely heard of Paul's experiences of persecution as well, he wanted them to persevere. Now Paul had written his first two letters, and, um, and as he concludes, we can conclude that the second letter that he had written was almost just as firm and as bold as the first one that he had written that we have um, in 1 Corinthians. Because Paul Paul references that letter in 2 Corinthians often. And what we are dealing with in our text this morning is Paul's concern for this church and their response to that previous letter. Paul considered the receiving of this letter to be a great turning point in the life of this church. If they submitted to his instructions and correction, and they corrected their error, then he had hopes that they would be restored and continue in the faith. 
But if they had not heeded his warnings and submitted to his apostolic authority, then he foresaw a coming destruction of this church. And he cared much for this church, and he anguished to hear the report from Titus. Titus was the one who, del- who was delivering the letter to them. He wanted to hear how they received the letter. And he's waiting for them and hoping in anguish that they receive it well, and they listen to what he had instructed them towards. And so Paul, um, Paul wanted to meet um, Titus in Troas, and after Paul had left Ephesus to go to Macedonia, where he would stay for a while, Troas was north of Ephesus and on the way to Macedonia, and it was a central meeting place for both Paul and Titus, as Titus was coming from Corinth, which was to the west. So he was supposed to meet Titus there and to give him a report about the church. But Paul, he gets to Troas, and as he says in verse 13, he does not find his brother Titus there. And so he was perplexed. His hope was to hear the report from Titus, but he got nothing. And so what does he do? Well, verse 12 he preaches the gospel. You see, he, he preaches the gospel of Christ while he's in Troas, waiting for Titus to come. He says that the Lord had opened a door for him to go to Troas, and while he wanted to see Titus, his main goal was still to proclaim the gospel. And so he did. And when he, he was done, he took leave of Troas, realizing that Titus wasn't coming, so he left Troas and continued his journey north to Macedonia, which is where he wrote Second Corinthians. Now, because of the personal touch of this letter, Paul breaks out into a doxology, a a time of praise and thanksgiving to God in verses 14 through 17. Instead of giving more details about Titus and whether or not he did get a report from Titus, which we actually will find out later on in chapter 7, but instead of continuing that report, he breaks into this doxology and this long digression that doesn't end until chapter 7. In which, in chapter 7, Paul says that he was, he eventually did meet Titus in Macedonia. Titus did make his way up to Macedonia to deliver the report from Paul. And Paul was comforted by that report, the report that Titus gave to him. And And because they had received the letter, and they received it with much mourning, as he says, and with much rejoicing, as well. And Paul rejoiced because, because their grief, their mourning over their sin, over their, their correction, it led them to repentance. And so that church was restored. But Paul didn't get to see Titus and Troas. But it was worth it to him when he eventually saw him in Macedonia because of the good news brought to him by Titus. You see, things didn't go as planned. His ex- expectations were not met. But they went according to God's plan, and for that Paul rejoices. And so that is our background work for today that I hope will be helpful. And my encouragement to you would be to go and read this letter more. Uh, Go and read 2 Corinthians. And to see Paul's love and care and devotion for this church. And Paul's authenticity in his love for Christ and for the Corinthian church. But for today, for today, we are confronted with these handful of verses. How do we handle and navigate disappointment? How do we navigate what seems like defeat? Paul gets to Troas, and Titus isn't there. He doesn't know whether or not his letter was received well. And he's waiting and anguishing. He doesn't know what to do. And it seems like there's defeat there. There's unmet expectations. What about trials? 
How, how do we deal with trials? How do we navigate them? When, or when dreams are crushed, when schools relocate, or pastors leave. How do we move forward? And what are we moving towards? What is our mission as a church going forward as we enter in a new chapter, a new season? Well, Paul makes something clear for us in verse 14 that paints a picture for the rest of the text. And that, is, and that is that God leads us towards triumph and victory according to his purposes and not ours for his glory. And we want to know what that looks like. And so my proposition is this. Asking the question, what does victory look like in the kingdom? What does victory look like in the kingdom? This is the question that we will answer as we consider Paul's doxology here. If God leads us in Christ to triumph, then what does that look like? Because oftentimes it's hard to see that. It's hard to believe that, that what we go through in trials, in hard seasons of change, it's hard to see that God is actually using that and working in the midst of that to cause us to triumph in Christ. So let us consider my first point. Victory has the appearance of defeat. Victory has the appearance of defeat. Let me read the first part of verse 14. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. The first thing that Paul gives thanks to God for is his success, which includes his triumph over the enemies of God, the spreading of the knowledge of Christ, the proclamation of the gospel. And even in times of anxiety and grief, God leads Paul and the apostles to triumph in Christ. But what does that look like? What, how does Paul see it that way? Well, Paul uses this striking metaphor to explain this. He refers to the triumphal procession. This was a custom among the Romans. It was a Roman victory prayed for a triumphant general. When a general would win a battle, he would come home to a parade to celebrate his victory. He would lead the parade in a chariot pulled by horses or sometimes elephants and he would, um, he would be clothed in purple, which is the color of royalty. He would, he would hold an eagle crown scepter. Lined throughout the street would be pagan priests who would burn fragrance that is offered on the altar, uh, altars of Roman gods. There would be musicians playing throughout the parade. And then crowds of people rejoicing and praising the fame and glory of the conqueror. There would also be piles of treasure all around and a multitude of ships that would come from surrounding cities. This, this was a big deal. This was a celebration. But there was one other aspect of the procession that, that Paul has in mind. Followed behind the general at the rear of the parade would be a horde of prisoners captured by the general and his army. And these prisoners would be led to their execution at the end of the parade. They would march in the parade to be killed at the end. One such procession would have been fresh on the mind of Paul in the Corinthian church. In the year 51 AD, just before the letter was written, the Roman emperor Claudius had celebrated his triumph over the Britons and their, their king Caractacus. Okay, I thought I'd be able to get that one. Caractacus. <laughs> who had been led in the procession. And so, so this is fresh in their minds. And Paul, he uses this metaphor here in 2 Corinthians to describe the, the victory that God leads his people in. Paul also uses this metaphor in one other place in Colossians 
uses it in kind of a different way, where he says, He, being Christ, disarms the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The same Greek word is used there. Christ triumphed over the principalities and powers, over the rulers in the heavenly places. He, he humiliated them and was victorious over them. The same spiritual powers that we wage war against, as Paul says elsewhere in Ephesians 6. You see, through Christ's victory on the cross, the powers of darkness were disarmed and humiliated, like the captives led to their death in this Roman victory parade. So Jesus disarmed his enemies and led them in a victory parade to their defeat. And in a sense, he is still doing that. He's still leading his enemies to their end until all of them will be disarmed and Jesus will defeat his, uh, the last enemy, which is death, as we read in 1 Corinthians 15. But Paul now uses this metaphor kind of differently, though. What we see here is that God the Father is the, the victorious emperor, and the, the one who put on the parade, and he puts on the parade for his general, who is Christ. And Christ is the one who is victorious. He's the conquering king. He, he disarmed the rulers and authorities. He's, he defeated his enemies. And he's leading this triumphal procession. Thanks be to God that he... Caught, uh, thanks be to God that in Christ, he always leads us in triumphal procession. Christ is the one leading in Christ. So what we, um, so Paul is the one here that seems to be captured by Christ. Right? This is how Paul is using the analogy. Paul and the apostles are the captives, those that Christ has conquered through redemption. For Christ says, if you will be my disciple, you must take up your cross and follow me. You must die if you want to follow me. As, as Paul says in Romans 6, if you've been baptized into Christ, you have been baptized into his death. You've been crucified with Christ. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Paul and us as well are summoned and called to follow him and to follow him to die. We are called to die. If we want to follow our conquering king, we must, must follow him to the cross. And follow him to the grave. Paul is the one being led to his death. He is, and he's doing so with joy. With gladness. Because what will end up as his death will end up being the victory that he gets to share in the sufferings of Christ. As he suffers for the sake of the name of his Lord. This metaphor contrasts something for us that we see throughout the book of 2 Corinthians. And that is the contrast between what seems to be our apparent defeat, but what is actually our victory. Paul thinks of Christ as the victor, entering the city into which the glory and honor of the nations is brought. Christ is building his church, and as we will see in a bit, he is spreading the knowledge of himself over the world. And Paul is one of the captives in this scenario. But he's also the one conquering as well because he's in Christ. Paul's using this, in many, this metaphor in many different ways to show that ultimately the triumph is for Christ. He's the victorious king and he's called us to follow him in his victory, even if that means death. And through the captives, the knowledge and fame of the victor is made known. The fame of the general in his victory... And Paul rejoices that God actually uses him 
and the apostles and their misfortune to spread the fame of Christ. That this, this victory prayed is for Christ and they get to partake in it and participate in it and Christ gets to be made much of. The gospel is made known through their suffering and will eventually be made known through their death. And what does triumph look like for Paul? Well, it does. It looks like death. It looks like imprisonment. It looks like chains and suffering. For he says later in chapter 12, verses 10, verse 10, For the sake of Christ, I take pleasure in weakness, in insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Can, can any of us honestly say that? That I, I take pleasure when people insult me. I take pleasure when I'm, when I'm mocked, when I face trials and hardships. Now, Paul doesn't just take pleasure in the hardship itself, but in the fact that he gets to share in Christ's suffering. That for the sake of Christ, I suffer. And remember where kingdom victory began, began on a cross, in a grave. Victory in the kingdom does not happen apart from the cross, apart from death. But what always happens with death in God's world? Resurrection. Go throughout the book of Acts, and what do we see? Persecution, imprisonment, opposition from both outside the church and inside the church. Beatings, stonings, shipwrecks, lynches. And go beyond Acts for the next 300 years of the church. And the church undergoes severe persecution under the Roman Empire. But did it ever fail? No, no. In fact, every time the church faces opposition, specifically in the book of Acts, and for the next few centuries, but any time in the book of Acts that the church faces opposition, it grows. The apostles are thrown in prison. The gospel continues to go forth. And souls are added to the church. Paul himself, as a Pharisee, has Stephen stoned and then ravages the church. The church spreads out in what seems to be a retreat, but what actually turns out to be an ambush of the gospel as the apostles go out and, dis- go out and make disciples throughout Judea and Samaria. Herod blasphemes God and the word of God increases. Going beyond Acts, look at the emperor Nero in 64 AD. He set a great fire in Rome and blamed the Christians for it. And he liked to play with fire when he would nail Christians to crosses and burn them so that they would light the arena of the Roman Colosseum. The Colosseum where the gladiator games would be held. It'd be a place where hundreds of Christians would see their end as the shouts of bloodthirsty crowds filled the Colosseum and the saints of God would breathe their last. But... As we see later on in our text, it was their death that went up to God as a sweet aroma. As the famous saying goes, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. It was their blood that planted the seeds for the growth of the church. They died and the church lived. Death and resurrection. As the, first, as the church faces persecution, it grows. That is what victory looks like in the kingdom. It took three centuries, three centuries of persecution, of death, for the church to grow. And it did until it filled the Roman Empire. And those seeds that were planted sprouted massive trees that filled the greatest empire the world has ever known. And it didn't stop there. 
The Roman Empire would eventually fall, but what didn't fall was the church. It kept growing, and it is still growing to this day as nations that have never heard the gospel are receiving the gospel and repenting and believing in Christ. The gospel is exploding in places like Africa and in the Middle East, in China, places that are facing severe persecution. You see, whenever, whenever you will hear of Christians being beheaded or executed in places like the Middle East, when we hear the churches in China facing severe opposition and, churches being, and Christians being thrown in jail, when we, hear, when we read those headlines and hear those stories, we should always be able to say, oh, I've heard this story before. I, I know what comes next. Because as we will learn this summer in Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun. And the gospel will never fail. God will fulfill his promise to fill the earth with the knowledge of his glory in Jesus Christ. And he does that through the suffering of his saints. Persecution may come for us. This nation may fall. Our children, or maybe our grandchildren, may be forced into underground churches, or may be thrown into prison for the sake of Christ. But we know how this story ends. And may we tell our children how that story ends. That Christ will have the victory. He will lead us in triumphal procession, even if we are to face death and defeat. Because even then, we will be victorious. Christ will build his church. The gates of hell will not prevail as Christ and all his saints march forward throughout time to conquer and triumph, not triumphing in the way the world would, but triumphing by dying as we march to our death, believing in the God who raises the dead. And as we march to our deaths, so that God will use us to produce fruit for the next generation and numerous generations to come, we will live by dying. By dying to self, by dying to the flesh, by husbands laying down their lives for their wives, modeling Christ's relationship to the church, by climbing up to the altar every day, dying for her, by parents laying down their lives for their children in the midst of exhaustion and sleepless nights, saying, I will live for my children by dying to myself today, and by all of us dying to the fleeting pleasures of the world by finding our end, whatever way God wills, by living for the glory of Christ until we die, so that we will live forever. We die by living because our Savior died for us so that we could share in his death and truly live. That's what victory looks like. It looks like defeat. To this world, outside of the church, it looks like defeat. It looks like you're, we're losing. When we face severe persecution, when we're thrown in prison... That's what, but that, but God is. All, but we have this promise that God's always leading us to triumph. This church, Emmaus Road Church, has no guarantee that it will be around in five years or in ten years. But we do. What we do know is that if this church dies, God will resurrect something better, because that's what He likes to do with dead things. We do not put our confidence in keeping our doors open or our bank account full. No, but we put our hope in the One who is building His church. And we're not ignorant of the way he does that. We have faced an ending. We've closed a chapter. We've seen the death of dreams and expectations. But we trust in the God who resurrects dead things. And we are, and we, are we must move forward in faith. 
knowing that our hope is not and was not in Joel. Our hope is not in Micah. Our hope is not in me. Thank the Lord. Our hope is in Christ. Because Christ will build his church until one day every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is Lord. And one day in Bozeman, every knee will bow to Jesus. And while we are here, we are called to be the messengers that deliver that message to Bozeman. That is what victory looks like in the kingdom of God. It looks like defeat, but it means victory. Secondly, victory is effective. Verses 14 again and verse 15. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Paul's greatest goal and mission was to see the knowledge of Christ spread throughout the known world. He was commissioned by God to bring the gospel to the Gentiles and to tell pagan nations that Jesus is Lord and he has died for their sins. Paul continues his metaphor, but he uses different types of imagery that is commingled. For one, he's not the conquering general or emperor. No, he's the captive being taken to death. But he is triumphant because he belongs to Christ and God leads him in triumph in Christ. But the imagery changes at the end of verse 14. Because during these great processions, the pagan temple priests would burn incense to fill the streets with a sweet aroma. And Paul says that it's through the apostles that the fragrance spreads. The fragrance being the knowledge of Christ. So not only are they being led as captives in the procession, but they are the incense that would be crushed and burned in order to be diffused and fill the streets. They die, but their death spreads the fragrance of the gospel. Through their suffering, the sweet sweet aroma of the knowledge of Christ fills the world. Now what does he mean by knowledge? Is Is it a mere mental ascent? No, this is the full knowledge of Christ as God manifested in the flesh. This is the knowledge that penetrates the heart and results in the Spirit's, in the, in the Spirit's work of renewal in the hearts of sinners. This is, this is the saving knowledge of who Christ is and what he has done. And wherever Paul went, he says, the knowledge spread everywhere. It went everywhere. Can we, can we honestly say that about ourselves? That everywhere we go, we're spreading the knowledge of Christ like an aroma. Because wherever Paul went, as he was crushed, as he suffered, God was pleased to use his suffering to spread this sweet aroma everywhere. In verse verse 15, Paul sort of changes the metaphor again. In verse 14, the knowledge of Christ is the sweet savor. But here in verse 15, the apostle is the aroma. But it's not himself alone. It's still the gospel which is being preached through him as God's instrument. So either way, in both these verses, it's the knowledge of Christ that spreads. That's the result. And here we see that the aroma goes up to God. It goes up to God first, and it's pleasing to him. Just as like the sweet aroma would be pleasing to the emperor and the general. But it's pleasing only because Paul is found in Christ. It is, it is Christ's sacrifice alone that pleases God. And Paul, and Paul and the apostles, they are all found to be in Christ, to be united to him, just like us. 
And we likewise diffuse a sweet aroma up to God so that God can say to us what he says of his son. I am well pleased with you because we belong to Christ. And Paul elsewhere compares us to a sacrifice by calling us to live as living sacrifices, which is our worship and service to God. And it goes up to him and God is pleased with it. See, our gospel proclamation, it goes out and it pleases God. Today, also, as we worship, we ascend to the throne of the Father and are presented as a pleasing aroma to Him. He is satisfied with us because of who we are found in. And notice that the message itself isn't the sweet aroma. Just like incense, the aroma cannot be released unless it is burnt, unless it has something to produce it. So it is something to diffuse it. So it is with the message of the gospel, as Romans 10.14 says. How can they hear unless someone preaches to them? You see, see, the gospel message needs a messenger. Your loved ones and co-workers will not hear the message unless you deliver it to them. As Greg preached last week, Bozeman needs a church that loves the gospel and proclaims it. Our town needs us to be a sweet aroma that first goes up to God and then spreads throughout our town. We must love the gospel and live out the gospel and trust in Christ to spread that gospel and trust the Spirit to do the work of regeneration. And it's this gospel that is effective as we see in the rest of verse 15 and verse 16. It says, among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, to one... A fragrance from death to death, to the other, a fragrance from life to life. You see, kingdom victory is effective and it changes the world, but it also divides the world. As a sweet aroma of the saints goes up to God, it also spreads to those around us. How we live and our gospel witness affects those around us. To those who are perishing, to those who are on their way to hell, to them the gospel is a fragrance of death that leads to death. They, they smell the aroma as we proclaim the gospel, and it tastes like death to them. It has no pleasing effect. Their hearts are hardened to God, and they want nothing to do with Him. And in one sense, they are like the doomed captives who, as they breathe the incense on the day of triumph, they knew that triumph would lead them where that lead would lead them, and that it meant death to them in the end. They would smell the sweet aroma. Though it may be pleasing, but they knew that it meant they were about to die. As Simeon says in Luke 2, Christ would be given up for the rising and falling of many. To some, Christ is a stone of stumbling who condemns those who fall over it. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.18, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. See, the cross is its foolish to this world. They cannot see how a cross, an instrument of torture and death, could be the source and display of God's wisdom in saving sinners. In another sense, the gospel brings death because it condemns the hearer and leaves them without excuse. It reveals their sin in their hard heart and they are left judge. But what about those being saved? To them, this message means life. From life to life. The gospel comes from true life and results in eternal life. There will, there will be those that will smell the sweet aroma of the preaching of the gospel and they will be satisfied. 
They will be delighted. Yes, I recognize that smell. Yes, that is delightful to me. Yes, that is my Lord. That is my Savior. They will recognize the smell and they will love it and delight in it. Even if the preacher is being crushed and dies. Just like Hugh Lattimore and Nicholas Ridley in 1555. As they were about to be burned at the stake in England. For, burned at the stake in England for their faithfulness to Christ. Lattimore said to Ridley, Be of good cheer, Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day, by God's grace, light up such a candle in England as I trust will never be put out. Be of good cheer. By God's grace, a candle will be lit that will light up England. Be of good cheer, for the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ will fill England. They were going to die as hordes of people laughed and mocked around them. They, they stood alone, but they had faith that God would use their death to spread the gospel throughout England. Do we have that faith? To some, the gospel will mean death as we proclaim it. Because it condemns them. But to others it will mean life. Even in the face of death, the savor of the gospel is pleasing aroma to those in Christ. Because death means life with Christ. And what does this mean for us? Well, whatever is the result of our labor and gospel proclamation, it will always be pleasing to God. It will be pleasing to God when we are faithful in preaching Christ in humility with right motives. But this also means that our preaching will always be a success. Whether it falls on deaf ears or on hard hearts or on soft hearts and those that will respond to the gospel. No matter what, God will have the victory. The victory in the kingdom means it's effective. That our gospel will not come back void. That it will do the work that it's meant to do. And our job is to get out of the way. And let it do its thing. We must never sugarcoat it or make it appealing to the hearer hearer, because it is only the Spirit of God that makes it effective. It is appointed for man to die once and then comes judgment. All mankind meets the same end in the flesh, but all mankind is on one of two paths to get there. Our job is to deliver the message that God will use to get them on the right path to get them to Christ. And so this should give us great confidence. Yes, it's frightening at times to share the gospel. It almost—it always is. It's often uncomfortable and hard, and we don't want to do it. But we can be confident in this, that it will be effective. That even if we stumble over our words, even in our weakness, even if we can't articulate it well, God can still use it. Because God uses our weaknesses and even our failures to save sinners. So that he will receive all the glory. And we must remember that the gospel of Christ is not neutral. It either saves or it kills. It saves those who believe and it judges those who don't. Paul's point here is that the aroma of the gospel either comes from life or it comes from death. The deciding factor is the heart on whom the gospel falls on. The law itself has this two-edged sword effect. To those who obey, they receive life. And to those who do not obey, it will mean death. Thirdly, and lastly... Victory is accomplished by God. Victory is effective. God will have the victory. He will do it. And it's him 
who alone who accomplishes it. The end of verse 16 and then verse 17. Paul says, Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not, like so many, many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Paul now asks a question with an assumed answer. Who is sufficient for these things? Who is sufficient for the spreading of the knowledge of the gospel everywhere? And the obvious answer is no. No one. No one is sufficient in and of ourselves. We cannot do this. In and of ourselves, we are not sufficient for this great work. However, based on what he says in verse 17, it also assumes that the apostles are sufficient. Why? Because they belong to Christ. And they are his instruments for the spreading of the gospel. It's those who preach the gospel with false motives. Those are the ones that are not sufficient for this. Because he says, we the apostles are not like those who are peddlers of God's word. He's referring to the false teachers who would abuse. Abuse the message of the gospel. They literally would make merchandise of the word. They use it for their own gain. Whether financial gain or social gain. Those people are not sufficient for the victory that God works for his glory. Conceit and Phariseeism and moral laxity and factions were all the work of the Corinthians. They were, there, there were many peddlers of God's word in Corinth. They would make merchandise of it. They would corrupt the, corrupt the gospel and correct, corrupt the message of the word of God for the purpose of trade. There were those who would use worldly tactics in order to proclaim the gospel. Relying on their gifts and their eloquent words to get the message across. across. They were all show, but no substance. But the the apostles were not in this group. They were not like those, as Paul says, because they laid themselves aside and let the message speak for itself. And they preached it for the sake of Christ and not their own gain. They weren't sufficient in and of themselves, but but they find their sufficiency in Christ. In fact, they preached knowing that they would be killed for the message. They would suffer for what they preached, but they kept on preaching not doing it for themselves. And they did so as men of sincerity, as those commissioned and called by God. They knew that their calling was only from God, and they were called to a life of death. They knew the cost, but they knew it was worth it. Because in the sight of God, they spoke in Christ. In the the sight of God, we speak in Christ. They spoke as ones united to Him, as His body. And when when they spoke, when they proclaimed, when they preached... Christ spoke through them. And they knew where they stood. They knew their position. And because they were found in Christ, they they were found sufficient. Because they were found in the one who was sufficient for the spreading of the gospel. Now what about us? We are the body of Christ. And as the body of Christ, we live and move and speak in Christ. As Christ is victorious over his enemies through us. We read this in places like Romans 16.20. Where Paul says that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. This is an Old Testament promise from Genesis 3.15 that the seed of the woman would come to crush the head of the serpent. And Christ came to do that very thing. But there's a sense in that there is still head crushing that needs to be done. He will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. This is, this is the already but not yet. Christ has thrown down Satan, but his influence is still present. And God uses us as the body of Christ to triumph over Satan. God will crush Satan beneath our feet. We will triumph over the enemies of God 
trusting in Christ who is sufficient for these things. And in the presence of God, we can crush Satan's head in Christ. And in the presence of God, we speak and proclaim the gospel of Christ in this world. Before God, in Christ, we speak. And the victory that we see, whether it's through suffering or prosperity, whether it's through death or life, the victory of the kingdom is all attributed to God. He accomplishes it. He does this through Christ. And this is what the victory of the kingdom looks like. This is the mission that we are called towards. Therefore, in conclusion, because God will cause us to triumph, we must proclaim the gospel. We must tell others about the hope that we have. Tell others that Christ has come and he has died to redeem Adam's fallen race. Tell others that his blood has been shed to wash clean those who are unclean. That his body was broken so that dead people would live. People need to know that Christ has taken the guilt of sin away. And that forgiveness is possible through him. And that Christ has been victorious over sin and death and over this world. And that he's building his kingdom through the spreading of the fragrance of the knowledge of his glory everywhere. And so, as Emmaus Road Church, as we enter a new season as a church, may we be above many other things, be faithful to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. The kingdom that is at hand, the kingdom that people need to know about. May we be bold and confident in our God who will have the victory, who will lead us in triumph. May we be confident knowing that the gospel message will never come back void. It will do its job. We need only let the lion out of its cage. So may we be known as a church who regularly spreads the aroma of the knowledge of Christ all over this town. It will be the smell of death to some. People will hate it. People will mock us for this message. But it will be the, the smell of life for many. Because this town is dying and this town needs the gospel of life. So let God use us. And may he be pleased to save souls through our message. Now this doesn't mean that we need to go stand in downtown Bozeman and start preaching. Well, there may be a time for that. But, but what this means is that we must let the gospel permeate our life. That it may, so that it may flow out of all that we do. Yes, this text is specifically concerned with verbal proclamation of the gospel, but it goes beyond that in how we live. The Corinthians were in the midst of a hypersexual culture, much like our own today. And so the gospel surely would have been spread through, their con- through how they conducted themselves. This is why Paul was so firm with them in, in his previous two letters. He wanted them not to live like the pagans around them, but to co- conduct themselves in such a way that they bring honor to Christ in his name. And that it sets them up to proclaim the gospel better. The Corinthians, and, and, um, and as, the, as the Corinthians lived out the gospel in every area of life, they would allow it to permeate all they do so that they would stand out. So that they would be a city on the hill in the midst of a dark pagan city. So may we let the gospel change all that we do. And yes, sometimes things will not turn out the way that we hope. Sometimes dreams will be crushed and expectations not met, but God will use those moments to lead us in triumphal procession. And that is where our hope is. And, in, and our hope is in the one who will spread the knowledge of Christ over this town through us. That we will continue as this church, we will continue to be built up in him. 
trusting that he will accomplish it, that it will be effective, and that though it may look like defeat, it will mean victory for us. We just have to be ready to die for him. We must be ready to lay down our lives, to die to ourselves every day, and allow God to use, the, use dead things to make living things. Because we know that God took dust and made man. He takes dead souls and gives them life. And so may we, as his church, may we die for Christ, but know that we will always live with him. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. Thank you that it is true. Lord, we ask that you may take your word and cut it deep into our hearts so that we may be changed, so that we may walk in obedience, that we may love Christ more, that we may want to proclaim his gospel more. Help us as we go into this week, but also as we enter this new season. Help us, Lord, to be completely confident in you in all things, knowing that that our sufficiency is only found in you, that we cannot move forward apart from your grace and your power at work within us. So Lord, help us, strengthen us, give us boldness, and give us a love for you. May we be known as a people who love Christ and love his gospel and want to tell others about it. Help us, Lord. We praise you and thank you for Christ. Thank you for the victory that he has brought and that he is leading us in, Lord. We pray all this in his mighty name. And amen. Would the music team please join me up front as we transition to the Lord's Supper.